This is the Vegan Champion Podcast. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we have for you a conversation with none other than Durian Rider. He's a polarizing figure in the health and fitness world, and it was really interesting to sit down with him, hear his story, and pick his brain. That's today's show, episode three of the Vegan Champion Podcast. What's happening, everybody? My name is Jason Fonger, and I'm the host here at the Vegan Champion Podcast. The idea behind this podcast is to showcase people who are out there doing amazing things for the vegan movement, people who are champions of the vegan message, if you will. Today's guest is one of, if not the most active vegans on all of social media. Harley Johnstone, aka Durian Rider, as he goes by on social media, has a seemingly tireless work ethic when it comes to creating and uploading content which promotes a healthy vegan lifestyle. I came across Durian Rider's YouTube videos back in 2010, and his message definitely inspired me in many ways. Since then, he has become a mentor and friend of mine, and I definitely have to thank him for helping me get to where I am today in terms of the life I'm living and the level of fitness I have attained. It was great to sit down with Harley to have this conversation. I think by listening to this, you're likely to gain a better understanding of him and his message. Just a heads up, this was recorded in a room that was a bit boomy, so the audio is less than perfect. My apologies for that. I'm still very new to this podcast thing, but I promise you that the quality of these episodes will improve as time goes on. Okay, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Harley Johnstone, aka Durian Rider. So what's happening, Harley? Just uh, here in Changwa, Thailand, back in town. Yeah, man. Enjoying the, the vegan food here. The vegan festival. Yeah, the Thailand vegan festival at the moment is going off again. Yeah, man. When uh, when was the first time you came to Thailand? 2005. 2005. And then, so did you come to Chiang Mai that time? Uh, no, that was, first time in Chiang Mai was uh, 2010. 2010, let me just move on with me here. Yeah. Uh, 2010, December 2010, came to Thailand, Chiang Mai. Uh, me and Freely came here, and I was like, we're at the doi. Yeah. So it was my first travel process on this. On the doy, nice. It seemed to do like a thirty-seven or thirty-eight minutes. That yeah. was going full gas. That's not bad. Back, went a couple of tiger ones. Yeah, very and, cool. Um, yeah, that was, uh, it was a good trip. Good so trip. what what did you notice um, since the first time you came to Thailand? Mm-hmm. And now have you noticed any changes? In- oh, a lot more population, a lot more uh, what would I say pollution, mm. um, less fruit, more fast food, more meaty western stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have like, definitely gotten fatter. Yeah. Back in 2005, like, all the girls you'd see, not all of them, but yeah, like, most of them were super slim. Now it's like a, it's easy to find fat people in Thailand. For sure, for sure. Uh, still feel incredibly safe here. People still super friendly. Um, but yeah, the fruit quality has gone down, fruit availability has gone down. Why do you think that is? Just more into the dairy ice creams and the chocolate. 
Yeah. So they get their sweet fix from that. Right. And the fruit culture find is the old people. Mm-hmm. The old people buying the ganyard durian and things like that. And then the young people are a bit more like growing up now with the ice creams and sweets. Yeah. More than fruit. Yeah. So it's you don't see the fruit consumption as much as you used to see in 2005. And as back then I was like a raw foodist, so I'd really like, mm-hmm. you know, you're locking down, where's the food, where's the food? Yeah. And now I imagine myself as a raw foodist again, thinking, man, even really today, me and Natasha were laughing at like, where's the fruit, or where's the quality fruit? Well, we yeah. bought a massive bag of, like, we bought two papayas that chopped up for us. Super friendly, super cheap, but there's just no sugar and just no calories. Yeah, yeah. So then we went to, yeah, so it's definitely less and less fruit. Mm-hmm. quality yeah it's sad man like because I guess people are just like the Thai people seem to be following in western cultures footsteps like all the fast food ice cream yeah. all of that stuff is taking priority and then I guess the, the fruit is just going down 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 which is unfortunate what do you think we, can we do anything about that to get the fruit quality back up I, I mean I like to be the optimist on the on the uh, the Virgo Sagittarius moon yeah which means I'm a uh, dreaming idealist so I like to believe we can change the world but the realest part of it knows that we can't because mm. it's just human ego like we're, we're so money hungry we're so into fame and power and yes scaling the ladder and it's just nature just gets the full backhand mm. like people I mean you go to the food court here you watch the Chinese come in not to be racist or anything but just like you know the Chinese and I've got, I've got Chinese friends and they're super friendly and I'm, I deal with Chinese business people all the time with bikes and stuff so but what I notice though is it seems to be a total disregard to the environment and same in Australia Aussies mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. but here it's like if you said to a Chinese person don't use plastic bags or whatever they'd be like what? why not? Like, what's all that? Mm-hmm. and I guess yeah. if you explain it to them they'd probably understand it because the Chinese are very very smart mm-hmm. but you see just a plastic bag to a plastic bag to a plastic bag and the Chinese economy is just growing so fast and same mm-hmm. in India as well so there's and the, the environment is like that's not doesn't make money so people don't care about it so. for sure so it's very comfortable there. So I don't, I don't think we're going to save it, but let's pretend we can. It's better to do that than to give up. Yeah, you got to try. Try to do the best you can, right? Always. Always be part of the solution versus part of the pollution. Durian Rider, where'd you get your nickname? Durian Rider came from in 2005 when I was in Thailand, when they couldn't really pronounce the name Harley. <laughs> and this random Thai guy at the bike shop, he, I think he just said, Durian Rider, you ride bikey, Durian, you're a Durian Rider. Yeah. And then I was on more food forum for more pleasure back then. I thought that's a cool sort of name, Durian Rider. And that, that was in, did you say Chanthaburi? That was Chanthaburi 2005. Yeah. So yeah, I've been on forums since 2003 on vegan forums and stuff. Nice, so, man. That's where Durian came from. Cool. So yeah. Very cool. Um, let's talk about life before you went vegan, man. Life before we went vegan. Like growing up, um, you were not really that athletic as a kid, were you? No, I was like into Nike shoes and into bikes back yeah. in the eighties when I grew up. Born in seventy seven, August twenty third, seventy seven. Uh, so in the eighties, almost all the kids in Australia went BMXs. You know, it was like who yeah. had a red line or a GT or a Haro or a Diamondback or a Mongoose, and yeah, that was status with your BMX. And my, my single mum, she didn't have much money. Didn't, we wouldn't have had bling bikes, but my brother got a three hundred dollar red line. And I used to steal that on the weekends and ride around and you didn't think I was the coolest kid in the neighborhood, you know? And, and so, yeah, so I had that passion for cycling early on, but I was a sick kid, the asthmatic, always feeling crap. And so I became in and out of hospital with asthma and chronic fatigue and digestive issues, so. Was that, was that through your, your, your teen years or? That was probably from eight until I was vegan in 2001. Okay. So, so well, it was 20, 2001, I was 24. Okay. About. 
So yeah. So you're a little bit into like bikes just because it was a cool thing. Yeah. And just like like most normal kids are, yeah. right? Like yeah. I remember being yeah, you know, riding cruising around your neighborhood or whatever. Adventure. Yeah. Independence. Yeah, exactly. Wifey, mom, like dad. Yeah. Working, you know, responsibility and mature adults. You and your own imagination. Go ride with your friends or go exploring the bushes and the tracks and trails. So we used to ride big mixes on trails and stuff. So yeah, that's where the cycling came in. Mm-hmm. Just that pleasure and running, riding around. Thinking I was going to be a BMX racer and then having a big, massive crash at the BMX track and then totally giving up on that dream. And, and uh, yeah, so you had a crash. Yeah, had a big crash. What happened? Just, just knocked myself out. And then I was just like on a jump or yeah, a jump. Yeah, just trying to scale a jump and then that was guy, it was guy off. Man, I, I had, a, I had a few crashes, like yeah. you know, jumps and stuff. And yeah. I think I was lucky; I never broke anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, looking back, I'm surprised I didn't have more crashes and just you know mess myself up. Yeah. But that's uh, sort of scared you away from being a BMX. Scared me away from doing stunts. Yeah, you appreciate it. But mm-hmm. then I would ride. I'd do distance stuff in a BMX. So I'd ride to the next suburb, and I'd mm-hmm. come home and look on the street direction. Oh, just tell my mum I rode to Sail Terrace. She's like, "What? You rode to Ocean Reef? Like, that's, isn't that too far?" So I feel right. She was wow. And then I became. I got that feeling of significance from my mum, and then also got the sense of adventure. Yeah. And so very strong drives just to go explore. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. The bicycle is a transformation tool. It's a freedom machine. So that was sort of consistent throughout, you know, your teenage years, like using the using the bike to just yeah. get around town, go to parties, run to school, cruise yeah. around. Yeah. Now you talk sometimes also about, um, you know, your past use with with drugs and getting oh, yeah. into that kind of thing. So yeah. when did that start? Uh, I'd say the first time I used the first drug I used was probably alcohol. Yeah. Maybe seven or eight. Dad gave me a beer. And that you know, one beer just like hit me hard, and mm-hmm. I remember climbing a tree and then falling out of the tree, hit my head. That was the first time. Yeah, and then I was just thinking, wow, like I, I can't, I don't really feel normal. What's going on? And the brother said, oh, you're probably a bit drunk. Yeah, you're seven or eight years old. Yeah, yeah. that's that's pretty young. Yeah, it's just sort of like here, you know, here yeah. I like try have a, have a yeah. taste. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I snuck off of the beer. Okay, and, um, just drank it. But either way, I was, you know, it was cloudy in the head, drunk, and then the first one I had. Illicit drugs like the marijuanas, etc., would be about 14. Mm-hmm. Just uh, eating some marijuana leaves on the back of a prawn cracker with my brother at a Chinese restaurant in Happy Valley, yeah. Kenahan's Road. And so I then went to started smoking dope a few years after that and got into the LSD and the speed and the ecstasy and other recreational drugs. Mm-hmm. And then just fell into that rut for, for a few years there. So was that a large part of your life? Like, was that sort of your... Mm. At what point did, did your life sort of start to you that, know, revolve around that? That was around. the 90s. That was a social group. I was yeah. in you know, graffiti, you know, shoplifting, Lacoste jackets and Nike Air Maxes and, you know, Levi Fiber Ones and Ralph Lauren stuff. So that was the culture back in South Adelaide area. And I uh, just used to be obsessed with graffiti and, and part of that was the hip-hop culture with marijuana and things like that. And you sort of... That became your normality. And then eventually got out of that when I wanted to get more into fitness. So it was a social thing. Do you think that was it? Um, I mean, were you using it to escape, or like, mm-hmm. do you think that there were other factors at play, or primarily primarily a social trying to fit in, sort of? Probably, I think most people get into drugs as like you know peer expectation, peer yeah. pressure, mm-hmm. and just just to try it out, just curiosity as well. Mm-hmm. Was I trying to escape anything? I think I was trying to escape maybe a few insecurities or, or whatever normal teenage stuff that most people go through. Mm-hmm. But I quickly realised that after a few years, I'm like, man, I've got to choose. You know, I don't want to be drug fucked, but, and I've got to, and I've got to, I've got to change my ways. Mm-hmm. And I got knocked out in a fight in uh, February 
of January 96 and I got knocked out and I was sober at the time and I just remember thinking man if I was high I wouldn't have felt very good at all you know felt bad enough bleeding from my nose and stuff so I got knocked out and I was saying I ain't doing drugs no more and then about a year later I smoked some dope at a party and I just really didn't enjoy that cloudiness anymore mm-hmm. and I enjoyed the stimulants I enjoyed the, the buzz of that but next day you're just trashed and I'm like how can I find a way where I can feel higher you know without the come down mm-hmm. and that's when I started experimenting with diet and stuff like that okay and went from there so yeah so what, so what was you mentioned that you started you started getting into fitness and getting getting that high from fitness from yes. moving, you know, moving your body so yeah. what what was that what did that segue look like from, you know, going to parties, getting, getting your high from, you know, these various substances? Like, how did you, how did you bridge that gap? The bridge of the gap was I would, became known as a sober guy. I was the first person in my group to stop doing drugs. Mm-hmm. And so I got a sense of significance. And as teenagers, we all have significance. And even as adults as well, we love that significance, but especially as teenagers, you know. Um, so I got that significance of being a sober guy. And then so I rode my bike to parties and people were like, oh, Harley Road. You know, ten k's to Blackwood to get on the party tonight. People are like, oh, you're sick, aren't you? And so yeah, that's yeah. significant. Yeah, t- yeah, I remember probably thirteen k's one time. And yeah. I was cooked. Oh wow! And I rode from the Blackwood train station to Happy Valley Kinhans Road, Delhi. Bought a Gatorade because I thought, well, now I'm an athlete. I need that sports drink. <laughs> and I had two friends there, Megan and Shay. And they're like, you look, you look cooked, Ali. What happened? So I was just reading from Blackwood Station. Like, oh my god, Blackwood Station, thirteen k's. And I, and I was like, yeah. And the, this is like the first time. Those girls were really like stoked and like, wow, it's a pretty good effort. And I was like, yes, yeah, this cycling's pretty good. You know, the, the girls give me praise, my mates give me praise, I'm feeling good. Mm. I'm riding bikes, I, I love riding bikes, so it just became very addictive really quickly. And okay. became just a full on addiction, unstoppable. Interesting. Yeah. So there wasn't initially any sort of uh, like social group that you had for, for fitness? It was Nothing. more like Lone Wolf. Totally just me needing a form of transport. And then I was like, wow, I'm saving money on the bus fares. People would get me inspired by my cycling. This is win-win. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just fell into it. Then I go to a bike shop. I had the bike shop and people give me all these tips. And, uh, and so that's why I guess I like to give people tips because I remember when I, fr- I was a total noob, no idea. Had these, you know, A-grade racers just giving me tips, you know. And I didn't even have a road bike because I wanted a mountain bike. But these guys would give me tips. And uh, one of the guys was called Darren. And he, just, he, he was basically one of the guys that told me to you know, carve up. Mm-hmm. So he was, and then when I started carving up even more, I was just like, man, I can, I can ride forever. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was, yeah, it was light bulbs ticking off. So it was really, really good times. You mentioned that um, you also had, you know, some of these health problems like asthma mm-hmm. and uh, I think Crohn's disease. Yes. Um, what, what did that look like? Like, I mean, get, getting over those, or I mean, do you still feel the effects of like asthma? Or I mean, when when did that start to? When did you make that connection between sort of lifestyle and, and managing those, those those symptoms? Well, when I started riding the bike more, I would feel better. Like my breathing was better. Maybe it started be like wheezy, but I'd cough yeah. up a bit of phlegm, spit it out, and I was like, oh, I'm detoxing. You know, I'm getting my body moving, limbic yeah. system going. I used to read physiology books and try to understand how the body would work. And so I said, okay, the more I ride, the better my digestion is. Yeah. And then they started playing with diet, you know, and then I became almost like an accidental vegetarian where I was too cheap or too lazy to cook up meat and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so at home, I'd, one of the staples was just literally rice and sweet chili sauce for dinner. And maybe a can yeah. of beans on there. I love that. Yeah. Rice and sweet chili sauce. So, so good. So it was like, or oh, I'd have cereal with milk, you know? Yeah. Um, 
And so, you, so, so it's vegetarian stuff. So a lot of my was coming vegetarian because it was cheaper and more satisfying and didn't have all these greasy pots and pans to cook up. And so it became, was, that, was that when you were still still into the you know drugs? You were still riding right your bike around? No, I, I stopped drugs when I was sort of about a year after moving out of home. Okay. And so then I became more of a cyclist and I found, found riding whilst on, whilst high I didn't feel safe in the bike and I'd be like yeah. being stoned on the bike and feel a little bit like paranoid and stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, I remember having a bike crash I was stoned as well and crashing the bike and I was stoned and I'm like man when you're stoned concentration's not so good so I started to attach a lot of negativity to drugs right and more positivity to cycling okay and so the, 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 the marijuana was getting away with cycling and so I said I could, I've got to you know, I don't like this no more as well mm-hmm. so all this leverage I never actually did amphetamines while I was riding a bike, which is probably a good thing, because uh, they definitely make you run faster. Right. But yeah. Cool, man. Um, so, what the motivation for getting into fitness was? I mean, initially just getting around town, mm-hmm. and then it became more serious with you know starting to get some praise. Yeah. And then you started to get you know some advice from was it was it Darren or yeah Darren yeah Darren who started you know saying oh you just gotta carve up more and more, more sugars yeah. So then, how did you get? really to the next level where you're really like, okay, I'm, I want to do this as, as sport and I want to start really, you know, seeing what I can do here. Because eventually you did race. Yeah, race crits and stuff. In 97, I met a guy who went to my high school. Uh, my friend Scott Day introduced me to him. His name is Johnny Jeffries. And he uh, he was a member of a cycling club called Norlunga Cycling Club. And uh, he we met up, went for a ride. And uh, he was the first guy I'd really seen wearing Lycra. And I remember going to the car park at Foodland, Happy Valley, and he turns up and he's Lycra. He's wearing some Mappe kit. And I was like, wow, this guy wears Lycra, you know? And, and he shaves his legs. Yeah. And from my graffiti oh. culture, it was all, I'd be like, you know, it's a bit like sort of weird. Yeah. But then I was like, oh, that's what bike riders do there. They, they be more aero. So I'm, I'm in my Nike t-shirt and Nike tennis shorts riding along. Yeah, with another guy called Mike Smith when I'm Mount Lofty. You still on a mountain bike or? I still, no, I was on a road bike by then. Road bike, yeah. Road bike in September 97, worked one month at night shift in a factory to get it. And uh, it was a blue Avanti Corsa with eight speed Ortega 600. And uh, it was a great bike. Eventually cracked it, got warranty in the frame. Mm-hmm. But he's- So you rock up with this yeah, bike? Yeah, rock up with, with, and Johnny, they're gonna, they're gonna, we're gonna take him Mount Lofty. Yeah. So we went up Green Hill Road. And uh, those guys just totally caught me. And I'm try- just trying to keep up with them. I was just so gassed. Like, legs were cramping up. And, oh, man, it was... But when I got home, I was, like, so so cooked, but so buzzing as well. It was your first sort of taste of yeah, well, real power, I guess. Yeah, yeah, just seeing guys flog me. Yeah. And you go, wow, I'm not as fierce as I thought it was. Yeah. And just, yeah. And then yeah, riding, like, riding 13Ks to the party isn't so nah. impressive. And that was maybe <laughs> a 50 or 60K ride. Um, and this and how old did this is you said ninety seven? Actually, sorry, I'd, I'd done a few hundred, I'd done a couple of hundred k rides before this. Okay, but this is the first ride I've done with fast guys. Okay, so yeah, yeah. And so did you start riding with them regularly? Go back next week? Yeah, yeah. Me and Johnny would do rides, and soon like my fitness went up and up because he gave me some tips about pacing and drafting and stuff. And then he goes, you should try and do a, a bike race, a criterion, a criterion meaning like a one hour race around a sort of a street circuit. And so I turned up my first criterium, it was December 1997. Again, didn't have any lycra, turned up in shorts and t-shirt. And uh, had my first race in D-grade. The guy at the start line said, E-grade's already left. You, I'll put you in D-grade, you will get dropped. Don't worry, you will get dropped. So don't beat yourself up. And I thought it was a challenge, I'm not gonna get dropped. 
and I didn't get dropped, but I had to give everything. That first race, I was so cooked. I was so cooked. That's not bad. Yeah. And it managed to stick on. Yeah, no, everyone was yelling at me in the pack, so I wasn't holding the line. And, mm. and then the guy said, oh, you did well, but next time you race, you've got to have a lycra. You know, you've got to have the kit. So I had that kit that week and bought a, uh, bought a jersey. Nick's, I felt like a felt like Lance Armstrong. One of the game. Felt like one of the game. Yeah. And uh, I used to like envy all the people in C grade and B grade and A grade. So like, wow, oh, those guys are so fit. Like, one day I'll be there. And it's just yeah, it's just a really good community and uh, good times. How far did you did you take it with the crit racing? Did you mm-hmm. did you eventually work your way up? Oh yeah, I was racing A grade crits. Did hundreds of crits, I reckon, hundreds of bike races. We used to race crits twice a week, Tuesdays and Saturdays. Yeah. At Regency Park. And you know, did a bit of racing in Europe, and yeah, just just went went for it, and uh, it was a good uh, good experience. What what was the training like back back then when you were training for crits? I mean, I imagine it's a bit different than how you train now. Or was it the same kind of approach? It, the training for crits was a spider, this little baby spider no, really. on there. Uh, the the difference is, I would just ride with a couple of mates I met as well. Johnny, would he, he got to work at Job at Coles and he was not riding that much and he met two guys, Jay and Anthony Brooks, and also a friend, Todd Lorenz and Paul, Paul Reed. And so we would always ride together on the weekends, maybe after, after work sometimes. But generally, we were weekend warriors and go and hammer it. And so these guys were really good mountain bikers and they gave me a lot of tips on intensity and pushing it hard. But basically, we just go ride on the weekends and just I would try and keep up with them. And they sort of mentoring you a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, they were always about three minutes faster than any sort of climb of 30 minutes. So I would do Mount Lofty in 30, they do it in 27. Hmm. So I was like, you know, always uh, trying to keep up with them. Did you ever have like a formal coach at any point? Oh, I had a lot of mentors and advisors. There was like some good coaches, but they just gave me tips. I went to the AS, Institute of Sport in Australia, back in 2001 for some testing and stuff as a lab rat. Not as a scholarship, but I was there for like six weeks and got to talk to a lot of coaches. What, what kind of testing? Like lactate, go to lactate, max. muscle biopsies. We did the altitude. Uh, we were actually the first lab rats to do the altitude. Uh, they, so what? Is, what is that? They made like an altitude house there. An altitude house. Yeah. So, so you're sleeping. You're sleeping at altitude, and and it's just oxygen. Yep. Uh, they tweak it. Yeah. And so what they did, they needed some you know, decent level cyclists to come and live in this altitude house for six weeks. And yeah. Do muscle biopsies and test all the parameters and stuff. So I was like, I put my hand up for that. So that was really good. Got to have some really good coaches. Um, Dave Martins, who's getting on the Cadell's old coaches. And so I just got to hear all that doping and everything and the truth and what the deal is. And so it's really eye-opening stuff. That's, that's pretty cool. So did, did you learn anything like the, about yourself, about your, your potential as yeah, an athlete? Yeah, they, they said, like, when Dave Martin says, if you took drugs, then you could definitely be, you know, ha, ha, yeah. okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Exactly. So you're sort of moderate. Yeah, I mean, my beta 2 max was like, I think 78 at the highest. And so for somebody who doesn't sure, like, is not sure exactly what that means. Yeah, it means your oxygen, your body's ability to use oxygen. So okay. It was, it was, so you're going as hard as you can, how much oxygen can you take in? Yep. That's essentially it. And so what, so what is, you said it was about 72? 78. 78? Highest was 78. So then what's, how does that compare to say, let's say a world, world class cyclist in um, this? Almost. Yeah, to be a pro, you at least want to have 65 VO2 max. Okay. 65 would be a minimum. Well, someone like Mark Cavendish or the Spinch is probably like 65. Okay. But again, it's more about fitness. You've got bike handling skills, you've got to have a lot of luck and be want to break your legs in a bike race. Things I never had. Uh, so I had the motor, but not the, uh, 
you know, all this stuff. The, yeah, it's crazy, man. The, the, the risks that oh, cyclists take. I mean, especially descending is probably the biggest. Yeah. Well, but even just riding in a pack, yeah. you know, I mean, it's... Yeah, I remember riding to race in Canberra and crashing. And the guy in front of me crashed in the corner and I went straight over him, Superman yeah. to the bushes, didn't have myself over. It's so, a huge reason why I do triathlon, man. I did a couple. I did a couple cycling races, and I saw people go down right beside me, and I was just like, I'd I'd prefer the uh, time trial style. You it's know? way safer. Yeah, as much as I love bike racing, it, it is just so dangerous. Oh yeah, it was, I mean, it was so exciting. It's yeah. a great experience, mm. and it's just yeah, it's such a thrill. Yeah. But I mean, when you think about the odds, I mean, you you rarely meet people who do cycling races on a regular who haven't had their share of. Yeah, you know, crashes. So it's true. And uh, as an experience right now, there's races I could do where I feel totally safe. You know, like a climb, like hill climb. Yeah, or like that up. race, that stage race did last year in Thailand. Yeah. Seven day stage race. So I feel very safe from there because of my experience level. But as a, if you're a noob, that's when it's the most dangerous. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a pro, because it's so fast and so cutthroat, you have to really take big risks. Mm-hmm. So anything between that for me is sort of safe. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's yeah, it's, it's so cutthroat as well. So at what point do you get sort of exposed to veganism? Because you've been sort of mm. accidentally, you know, experimenting with vegetarian foods and stuff. Yep. So when does the vegan message really get really come into your life? It came into my life in uh, April 2001. Uh, it was probably November 2000 where I got really sick with like this fever and gastro and stuff. And, I met this guy, like, you know, kind of stop eating red meat, it's, you know, it just sits in your gut, doesn't digest probably. Who, who said that? This guy called Mark Hock. Just, you know, just yeah. a friend? Yeah, he was like this naturopath, psycho dude, but cool, cool guy. Okay. Um, so you said you guys stop eating red meat? Yeah, big, he's a big inspiration. He's no red meat, no dairy. Okay. You know, if you're going to eat any meat, maybe a little bit of fish and chicken, but very, very rarely. So I did that regime. Um, and he felt like so much lighter straight away. It's, you know, better than the clarity, just felt better. Mm-hmm. You know. And so, do you want to do that one? Yeah, I'm just going to... Uh, do we pause or keep talking or...? Yeah, we'll just keep talking. Right. I'll just... Uh, yeah, so Mark would say, you know, just easy on the animal products and go hard on the rice and the fruit and stuff like that. And soy milk instead of uh, dairy. So I was like, okay. And uh, went with that. And then I went vegan in 2001, April. So I read, uh, read more about the dairy industry and stuff and meat. Actually, I only had a girlfriend at the time. I was eating at a restaurant is eating like eggs. Mm-hmm. It's like, you don't eat chicken, but you eat eggs. Mm. She's like, same, same. Yeah, same, same industry. Thing. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you're right. She's like, you, you're a hypocrite, <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's brutal. That's honest. Mm-hmm. That's what I needed to hear. So like, oh, I'm not even making no more. So that was about a, a year before that, that you had met the guy, Mark, right, Mark yeah. and he said, hey, you gotta yeah. like basically yeah. drastically reduce the animal products yeah. a, a little bit. So you're still eating a little bit here and there. Very sparingly. Sparingly, yeah. but you enough to notice that your health was in, improving. Yeah. And so initially it was the health, but then this girlfriend who sort of gave you this slap in the face that you yeah. needed to, to really wake up. Yeah, Jenny, Jenny, yeah, we're at Red Rock Cafe on Monroe Street, and she's like, you know, she's a nurse, and she's like, you know, she always used to say that the more the people eat the meat, the sicker they are at work, you know, mm. and then the less meat you eat, the healthier you'll be. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't a big meat eater either, so it was, I had all these, her sister was a vegetarian, so I had all these like, little subtle influences in my life and then they were just piled together I was like I'm going vegan mm. I'm going vegan and, uh, and, then, and then when I went full vegan like in April 2001 then I was like oh my god like, this is this is, this is legit mm-hmm. and after a while you forget how good you feel it's like when you have a super light bike 
yeah. first week right, oh my god, this is incredible. Now after a few weeks, you're like, oh, it's just bike. Um, but I'd, and I'd be like, I didn't go back, but I had friends who'd go back and eat you know, chicken or meat or beef and, and duck. I'd say, how'd you feel? Like, oh man, I just feel, just feel terrible. My guts, like, I'm not shit no more. You know, I'm constipated as and mm-hmm. gagged up. And so I'd like, okay, you know, I'd have to go backwards then. Mm-hmm. So did you know anything about, I mean, did you know m- much about sort of the animal agriculture industries at that point, or was that sort yeah. of learned that later? I mean, in terms of, you know, how the animals are treated and the effects on the environment and things like that, was there, was that, were you aware of that from the get-go of going vegan, or was that sort oh, of... Yeah, I was always like an animal lover, I was, I, you know, even when I used to go fishing as a kid, I was nine months at a time throw the fish back, because I felt guilty for keeping or killing the fish, mm-hmm. so I'd throw them back. When people leave fish on the jetty flapping around, I might just kill it or throw it back. I'm like, don't let it flap to death. You know, do something better. So that that was always within me. Even though I used to go fishing. Yeah. Um, so, and then I was like, man, I don't have to eat animals. That's that's good. You know, I don't think eating animals is good for us. And mm-hmm. It's not ethical. It's not necessary. Like I have things I can eat. I'm not starving on a desert island. Mm-hmm. And so that whole thing went in. And then I and then I sort of learn about the the animal industry and the cruelty and stuff. But I've been on farms before. And I, I'd hear animals getting slaughtered and stuff, so I knew where it was coming from. Mm-hmm. But I always thought, oh, you've got to eat meat, it's protein, you know, you've got to have your protein. Animals, you know, animals are there for us to eat. Even if I don't like it, I need to eat them, you know, because it's just nature's design. That's right. where I live. So. so you had this sort of underlying, you know, affection and compassion for animals, but this the dogma belief, that, right, yeah. dogma that you have to eat it for health. So I guess that's why when people started recommending to get stuff out and it'll yeah. improve your health. Yeah. Once that sort of clicked, then it was it was sort of you didn't have much resistance. No, not at all. The resistance got broken down pretty quickly because I remember the first time he said, "Mark said red meat's not good for you." I thought this dude's this dude's crazy, man. This dude's seriously got some mental health issue. Yeah, but he's in great shape. Dude's okay. ripped. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he didn't look a steroid dude. He's just like yeah, maybe seventy kilos, just like pumped striations and just you know psycho mm-hmm. yeah, charismatic guy funny guy and so he was infectious yeah? he wasn't some low energy overweight dude with no fitness he was like you know getting it done he's like, he's like you know Aussie Bruce Lee yeah, okay. so as a you know 20 something kid I was just like that that's, this, this is appealing to me so I'll, I'll trust what Mark says I'll, I'll have a go at that and so yeah makes a big difference who, who's saying things everything we live in such a narcissistic world and uh, our appearance is, is definitely important. For sure, for sure. Um, so, what about social media? I mean, social media. Let's, let's talk about when when does that come in into play for you? Because you're, so you're going vegan, you're yeah. feeling better, uh, you're getting fitter on the bike. At what point do you decide to get on social media and start to like share what mm-hmm. all of this stuff that you've learned? And why? It, it would have been would have been two thousand three when I was racing bikes in Belgium and with spare time on my hands. So I would go on these vegan and raw food forums and just contribute. You know, people asking for weight loss advice. Now, you know, trying to do this silly, silly stuff like calorie restriction or water fasting, or whatever. And I'd be like, why don't you just eat healthy for you know, do that for a year and go from there. So I'd, that social media started for me in two thousand three, mm. two thousand five. I um, started posting on another forum called Veg Source, and uh, actually that's 2004. And then yeah, so I'd say 40, 15 years I've been on social media almost every day, just giving people advice on vegan lifestyle, weight loss, fitness. And then YouTube, I started YouTube in 2008, 
um, and went from there. Uh, it was uh, Facebook, maybe 2007, Instagram, 2013, maybe 2012. And today I think YouTube's definitely definitely the most powerful. I wish I knew how powerful YouTube was back in the day when I started, I would have taken it more seriously. Mm-hmm. It, it is so powerful. Like every day I get stopped in the street and my inboxes get smashed with questions and can't even keep up. All yeah. around the world, if it goes to New York or Thailand or Philippines, people will recognize me just for YouTube. Yeah. So it's a pretty cool feeling. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I really don't, I don't know anybody who's uh, probably posting more frequently than yeah. yourself, you know, and the, like, just consistency over the years, right? Yeah, yeah, I've averaged just over two videos a day for 10 years now. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I, I don't know, <laughs> and that, yeah. Some days it's like 10 videos. Yeah, you know? yeah, because I was a bit manic, it's a full moon or something, but yeah, YouTube is, is uh, so powerful. And I mean, I would, I'd spend a lot of time coaching other people as well, like mm-hmm. you know, Freya getting her channel up and going and just being by her side all the time, and Tori and now Natasha. And so I, I could do a lot more on my own channels and stuff, but I, I love spending time grooming up other people who've got massive potential. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that, that's good because then that grows the female community. Because mm-hmm. most women don't really listen to guys that much, they're going to prefer to listen to from women. So it's important we support the females who want to become YouTube celebrities and push them up. So what are what are some of the main things that you know you would say to somebody to, to help them get social media? Get maybe just to get on social media. Get out of your head. Stop critiquing yourself. Don't worry about what people are thinking. Like I'm yawning now because I feel so relaxed. But some people go, oh my god, I'm, I'm yawning in a podcast. And it's like, no, 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 just just give information, provide value, just smash it out, and we we get. Often we get too in our heads and we get pretentious and we put more importance and stuff. It doesn't really matter. As long as you put something up that can help someone, if someone will laugh from that or they'll get some sort of value from that, then that's good enough. Mm-hmm. We, what I find on YouTube is, all YouTubers I've coached over the years, and you probably know what I'm talking about, without mentioning any names, but they get maybe 50K or 100K or 200K subs and they, they're doing less and less content because they think, oh, I'm, I'm YouTube star now. I have to do really, really professional stuff. And that mentality just paralyzes them from taking any reaction. And so then their channels start to dive bomb down because their fans are like, hang on, well, why can't you spot some simple content? That's what you used to do. But people get better cameras, get better editing, and every video they're trying to outdo themselves. And it's good to have that attitude, but when it comes to social media, it's unsustainable. It's like trying to do it tech. And people like, they do an hour and a half first time, then do an hour 20, then then maybe 45 minutes, and they're trying to save off 20 seconds and they can't do it, and they just like, ah. No, no, just go there and do your best. Don't worry too much about the time or the views or the, the vanity meters that we have now of likes, subscribers, views and all that stuff and people like they base their success on that. <clears throat> Don't worry about that too much. If that's a side benefit, focus on just giving value, giving value. Mm-hmm. Focus on creating content that if you're a noob, you'd find that valuable. Because that's who's watching YouTube, these noobs. Like if I want to watch something about an iPhone or fix a microphone or whatever, I'm a noob, I'm gonna to go to YouTube. I'm gonna look up how to fix this, how to be vegan, how to be hype, what it, you know. So you've got to talk to the noobs because they're your audience, really. Mm-hmm. The experienced people, I don't watch any vegan videos because I, I know all that stuff. You know? Yeah. I don't even watch videos from my friends because I know what they're gonna say. What do you watch? I watch, um, what was I watching? I was watching, I watched Conor McGregor's stuff today. Oh yeah. Um, just to do a video about that, I watch stuff to how to fix my laptop or how to you know adjust a derailleur or things like that. So education. Education. I, I go to YouTube to educate myself. Yeah. But today I was actually watching spiders versus wasps. You know. So, yeah. So who wins? Oh, the wasp 
almost wins 99% of the time, but I was trying to find out if there's a spider out there. If there's a spider out there that actually hunts wasps in the original. Okay. Yeah, so occasionally a spider wins, but most of the time a wasp does. So I've got to YouTube to educate ourselves. So as YouTubers, as people on social media, we have to understand that people go to educate themselves. And if you're looking to be educated, you don't really care if it's fancy production. You just want the information. Mm-hmm. Like let's say you, you drop your iPhone in water and you go, how do I dry it out? And put it in rice. You don't need a high HD, 4K, amazing quality video to show you how to do that. Or you need some person with a non-shaky camera just showing you how to put your phone in the rice and get it done. But don't you think it's changing now? I mean, the amount of it people, changing. the amount of people on YouTube, like you could, you could go to YouTube and you could, you could type in, oh, I drop my phone in water. How do I fix it? You're gonna see probably some videos. really some, yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. probably some of them are gonna be extremely high quality. Yeah. So it's not necessary. It's not necessary, but what I'm saying is like, if somebody's feeling like they're they're being held back because oh, there's all this high quality stuff out there. Why would people watch my lower quality whatever? That's a limiting belief. Because my video, my videos are shit. I I use most of my videos as an iPhone. Yeah. You know, or webcam. You know, like I do videos that take me five minutes to make, and some of them have like ten million views, or fifty five thousand views, or two million views, or whatever. Some of my most complex edits <laughs> never got more than like five, ten, fifty thousand views. I found that too. Some of the videos that I've done, and I've I've really put so much energy into editing and making, trying yeah. to make it. And I'm thinking, oh, this thing's gonna blow up. I put so much energy, and then it's like crickets. Like yeah, and that's but, right. But then other videos, like some of my most popular videos, I just sort of did on a whim, and yep. I didn't expect anything to come from them, and then boom, they're you know they're getting you know hundreds of thousands of views. So welcome to YouTube. I guess it's you just never know, right? Yeah, like well, Free is a good example. You know, um, you know. We used to, I put her video up on my channel, you know, I eat 50 bananas a day where I just interviewed freely, it's bad lighting. You know, she just showed a midriff, look, she looked great. And she's just being herself, and she's just so raw and so authentic and so innocent. And people just love that video, like 500,000 views. And that mm-hmm. launched her career. Just like I think that's the, that's the key thing, right? Is, is there's so much polished stuff out there mm-hmm. that is, you know, good quality, mm-hmm. high cameras, you know, good production, but there's a certain, like sense that it's staged and, and it's not real. That. That's, that's TV, that's why YouTube got so famous is because you've got the everyday girl and guy you can relate to. And people are like, that's my friend on my phone, that's the, you know? And so that video we do freely, like, you know, she's like, oh, delete it, don't put it up, please don't put that up, and I put it up anyway, and then she saw the views coming, she's like, oh my God, I said, I told you, I told you. Mm-hmm. And then that's when we started going on there, and then we started doing reaction videos and troll videos and just having fun. And oh, her channel blew up. Yeah, it's all the videos that went went viral, the real easy ones to make. One of them was like Uncle Chester kissing in public. You got like two or three million views. Mm-hmm. And that's video. If you're like, oh, I don't do this. It's the camera's not quality, and I'm like, just do it. Relax. I go, it'll work. It'll work. So, and it's the same. All the even Tori's videos. One she got like almost a million views. She's just trying on different cycling jerseys, filming on iPhone. Mm-hmm. That maybe took maybe five, ten minutes to edit. Mm. And you got these people who go to film school and get like a DSLR camera and all this fancy stuff, and they get nowhere. Mm. So, people, the biggest tip out there, even Gary V says it, he goes, it's all about quantity, it's not quality. Mm-hmm. If people can understand what you're saying, that's the quality. It doesn't matter about the, the crazy Spielberg effects. That's, that's for Hollywood. Mm. If I want to watch quality, I don't go to YouTube, I go to, to the movie cinema. Mm-hmm. If I want to get educated, I go to YouTube. What, what's your take on these different platforms now? Because I mean, YouTube's obviously evolved over the years mm. and now there's 
I mean, there's new social media platforms coming out all the time and they're always changing, like Instagram, Instagram stories, yeah. you know, Tumblr. I mean, what is, what, what are you focusing on, on now? Are you, I mean, there was a period of time where I, I imagine you were essentially just 100% on YouTube. Yep. You know, when YouTube was really in its sort of heyday and you were really seeing a lot of growth in your channel. Um, and now Instagram, I mean, what else are you focusing on these days? Just YouTube. Really, mostly YouTube. Still focusing on the young people on YouTube. Still, yeah. I mean, if I didn't get all these other vegan YouTubers on YouTube, mm -hmm. then my channel would be a lot bigger than it is now. Mm -hmm. The community would be smaller. So you yeah, know, I helped out all these other YouTubers. So um, yeah, it's probably like top the top thirty vegan YouTube channels. I would say I personally helped them out, monetizing their account, helping with channel names. I probably helped out maybe twenty five of the top thirty, maybe or twenty. You know, mm -hmm. that come through this festival in Thailand. Or from Adelaide or whatever. For sure. And so I, I really enjoyed doing that. So grooming people up and, and just yeah, telling people get on YouTube, get on YouTube, and then show them how to get on YouTube, how to monetize their account, stuff like that. So YouTube definitely still, YouTube's king, and the reason why I say that is YouTube's king queens because video content, you know, and it can be long stuff. Instagram is good. That's like that's crack cocaine. It's like poker machine stuff. People on that scrolling all the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but YouTube is the real emotional connection. I don't think people get a real strong emotional connection to an Instagrammer because it's very quick and it's just you know, posed photos, it's not really deep. But YouTube, you know, you, like Trisha Paytas, you know Trisha Paytas is? Yeah. yeah, so she's crushing it. She's just, you know, train wreck, but she loves trolling it and she's got super confidence. So Trisha Paytas is what people should be studying at film school. If you want to be a professional YouTuber, you should watch Trisha Paytas because she breaks all the rules. She doesn't no, even have a quality camera. She yeah. has a phone. Okay. She uploads on her phone. She, her edits are crap. She's shaky. She has bad lighting. She, her audio's her audio's almost always good, but it's not professional audio. It's good enough audio. And that's what it has to be. It has to be good enough, and more importantly, it has to be consistent as well. Mm -hmm. Good enough plus consistency plus a bit of drama and fun and comedy. People are staying around. Mm -hmm. And if you're consistent over time, people see that seriousness. And the more content you produce, the more people love that. Mm -hmm. Why? Why is it important? It shows energy. Yeah, yeah. like um, yeah, you get that live essence, the, the energy of whatever's happening. Like, like, like Times Square in New York. Yeah, so many people there. All the lights and there's energy there. Mm -hmm. Imagine if I turn the lights off Times Square, in New York. And people would go there, and this people would go there. So they, where energy is, attention flows. And that's, I've done it. I've seen it my own channels or other channels that stop uploading much and then <laughs> drops off. So we're working with Natasha now. She's on 1.8 million views in the last three days. She's getting up to a thousand subs a day. And she, now she's starting to see the numbers rolling in. You go, wow, this is, this is crazy. Yeah. So yeah, the more content she produces, goes up. People have an insatiable appetite for social media content. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like we were, we were saying just before this, we're, right now we're in this uh, sort of co-working space mm. here in Chiang Mai, <laughs> and there's all these people who are here and they're, you know, they're on their, their laptops or their tablets or whatever, and everybody's supposed to be working on something. Yeah. You look around at 89% of the screens, it's, you know, Facebook, WhatsApp, yeah, exactly. YouTube. YouTube. And people, people come to a lot of this place over here to like be not distracted. I'm going to go to this co-working area. I'm not going to have any distractions. The distraction is not external. It's no, on it's your screen. Yeah. <laughs> so it's you're coming with your screen. Yeah. That, that's why you know, people ask, just, someone asked me today, is YouTube still a secure job? I'm like, as long as people have got an, an iPhone or Samsung Galaxy in their hand or all these notes, yeah, it is. Somebody's smashing it out, it is. 
do you think do you see YouTube for yourself as more of more of a job for your own income and your own security, or do you see it more as activism for veganism, or both? Passion. Yeah. It, it, I spend on welfare under YouTube, yeah. and if YouTube took all its money off the platform today, I'd still be banging out videos. So why? Because I love doing it. You know, it's why? Like, because it, it gets people on the vegan bandwagon. So from yeah. 2008 to 2011, I didn't earn a single cent on YouTube. I sold nothing on there. I was just like, this is a great comp platform to spread the big message and mm-hmm. I was really cool I didn't understand how powerful it was if I did I would have done more content so I would get you know, 100 views or 1000 views occasionally and just yeah drop content and then I started with Mike Arnstein and so his work ethic he managing his family his business and employees I'm, I was like man I've got, I've got to work harder Mike Arnstein's crushing I'm going to get out there and get that big message going and uh, he's and, a crazy guy yeah big inspiration got yeah. a lot of time for Mike guy's got a lot of heart Oh, definitely. And uh, he's like the Lionel Sanders of the, of the, uh, yes. the vegan world out there. So Exactly. You know, events. And so, yeah, Mike Arnstein, massive inspiration for me. Mm. Massive inspiration for me. And so I saw that, and then yeah, and then I started making a bit of money. I was like, oh, because I signed up with Google AdSense. So I was like, I'm going to make a bit of coin. Mm-hmm. And then the money started getting bigger and bigger. I was like, wow, this is actually kind of a full-time job, and I stopped getting welfare because I was eating too much and went from there. Mm-hmm. So for me... YouTube started off as an in, uh, impact uh, template, and now it's become impact and income. Mm-hmm. I don't make as much money as I used to make because of the apocalypse and all that stuff. And I swear on my videos, I've got a lot of copyright soundtracks, so I'm like, whatever. Yeah, it really is changing, right? Like, what's monetizable? Have you, have you, do, you, do a lot of your videos? Most of my videos aren't monetized. They're not, yeah. They've been like flagged as unmonetizable. Swearing, coarse language, you know, vegans, just, it just, not advertiser friendly. Yeah. Is vegan not advertiser friendly? Like, are they? Um, do you think that yeah, they're? Yeah, depends on the content. Yeah, definitely depends on the content. If you're doing, as long as you're not swearing in a video, yeah, or showing graphic footage, then it's gonna be fine. Yeah. Do you think there's any? Uh, so if you show, if you show you know, cube of truth on YouTube, that'll monetize. Yeah. If you're showing like graphic animal slaughterhouse footage, that won't monetize. But actually, YouTube used to ban that stuff. From, I used to. I was. I was the first vegan that I know of. Back in 2010, uploading slaughterhouse footage, and YouTube was like, would delete the video. Just delete it. Delete it. And then about a year later, they, they said, okay, if you put it up, we just age restrict it. Age restrict and then no monetization. No monetization on that yeah. video. But now they're, they're, uh, they're pretty lenient on the, the slaughterhouse stuff. They're not monetize it most of the time. Mm-hmm. So now, vegan is not a bad word because there's so many vegan videos on YouTube now and there's so many vegan products and brands and stuff, so it's not a bad word. There's, there's only not swearing in your video your title when you're good to go mm. or showing too much nudity or skin. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I mean for the vegan movement, there's no, there's no way we're gonna spread veganism at the same pace that is you know, possible as it, you know, without using social media, like we have to, we have to use social media to get yeah. out there. Like, if you're out doing street outreach or you know these mm-hmm. these Cuba Truth events, people who are filming these conversations, like you can have a one-on-one conversation, or like you know this podcast, we could be, we could be having a conversation one-on-one. If if we record it and we share it, that yeah. reaches how many more people? Oh, you know, exactly. So, so there's out there forever. It's it's exponential the amount of reach that anything that you do within veganism, and that could be whether it's street outreach or whether it's you know doing you know fitness and lifestyle videos or you know cooking. Yeah. Anything it has to be shared because if it's not, I mean you're only doing one percent of what you what you possibly well, can be doing, right? 
that, that's, that's why even though I don't do one-on-one coaching anymore, I have a Facebook group, mm-hmm. and so people can sign up for that. And then they ask me a question, everyone can see the answer to that. Right. Yeah. So then I'm not just with one to one person, it's like there's like maybe 400 people in the room. So 400 people get to read the answer. Yeah. And so that that is really easy for me to, to do that. Well, so yeah, I mean, how, how many times does somebody ask you the same question? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and then it's great, and I'll answer it, but it's great to, you know, it's just it's like, it's more efficient. So to do like a massive, like a microphone, yeah. and reach more people. Yeah, reach more people, for sure. For the same effort. Mm-hmm. Definitely. More so, efficient, more effective. So let's let's talk about you know coaching a little bit. I mean, what is what is different about the way the way that you would approach coaching somebody, hmm. you know, as opposed to most other sort of uh, you know fitness gurus or lifestyle or diet gurus? I mean, what are some of the main differences that you see? Because I mean, you know, there's a lot of controversy around some hmm. of the advice that you give. And, Huge. Um, so like, outline for me. What's what are the main things that you teach that most other people are not teaching? My, my biggest one is I always try and find out. I've been a personal trainer since 99 when I got registered and 96 when I started doing it as a full friends and stuff. So 96 when I first started coaching people and I learned about then you got to know what their goal is mm-hmm. and most people's goal is weight loss. Mm-hmm. So when I know someone's goal is weight loss or health or maybe both, then I can just tune it to that. I can direct it. I can create the frame which talk about weight loss, talk about health. Mm-hmm. We can talk about like doing weights and doing stuff with people who are like, what's your goal? If your goal is to lose weight, then boom, we just fast track to that. The best mm-hmm. way to lose weight. High carb, low fat, vegan, ride a bike, do a bit of weights here and there. That, does, that doesn't sound so far off of what a lot of people are doing though. I mean, isn't that sort of what yeah. what a lot of coaches would do there? It's, you know, you'd, you'd sit down with a fitness coach or a lifestyle you know, mentor and yep. they'd say, so what are, what are your goals? And probably, I'm sure a lot of them would be weight loss. So. How, how do you approach that maybe yeah. differently than other, how other people may? Well, I generally just tell people to say, you know, send me a photo of the physique you're trying to achieve. Okay. Things like that. So yeah. Get really specific. Yeah. Or ask them why do you want to lose the weight? What's going to happen in your life? You know? mm-hmm. So generally, just find out. You know, what, yeah, so that is a pretty standard one. That is a pretty standard one. That's what I learned back in the day. Yeah. I guess my controversy is I go at things differently and a bit more honest and... Sagittarius-like in that some of the stuff I say might get be very blunt for some people, and they might they might uh, take offence to it. But the biggest thing is just knowing what someone's goal is, where they are now, and how they're going to achieve that goal, and telling them just telling them the truth as well. Because I get you know, some guys they want to look you know like a certain physique, and I'm like, show me the physique you want to look like, and they'll send me a picture of a, an athlete or celebrity, and I'm like, well that person's obviously using pretty high, high high dosage anabolic steroids. So unless you're willing to do that, then there's no chance you look like that. So it's great to be able to tell the truth from the get-go. Yeah, some of these people believe me, some don't. And I'm like, well, you know, you'll find out eventually about the steroid thing or whatever, or the surgery thing or whatever, and then come back and uh, let me know I was right or wrong. Mm. And another big one on Instagram is there's an app called Facetune or Body App, where girls and even guys are photoshopping their pictures to make themselves got a bigger butt or a smaller waist or bigger muscles. Yeah. And so I call it social media doping. Yeah. They put out this impossible standard so their fans are like, wow, this person's got this crazy physique, I'll buy their product. In actual fact, you're just buying a Photoshop image and it's you know, false pretenses. But it's, uh, there's a lot of naive people out there who believe everything they read on the internet. So it's interesting like that. What percentage do you think of, I mean, because we see all the, um, 
all these all these advertisements for you know fitness programs and for protein powders and even you know gym memberships or whatever. I mean, what percentage would you say of those kind those kind of photos are, are people who are you know using you know uh, I guess physique enhancing drugs? Yeah, say? I would say probably ninety nine percent plus yeah. Photoshop. Really? Yeah, I remember when I first got my uh, uh, pump. You know, called pump that that workout routine in the gym pump. Uh, I've done P90X. Yeah, so like, it was, this is it's called Les, Les Mills Pump. It was like choreograph, oh, okay. weights to music, like yeah. aerobics with weights. Gotcha. And I started doing my pump course back in 1999, and the trainer there, he was, he was going around teaching the people how to do it. Yeah, he looked really, you know, looked, looked good, man. Like, he's swole. And I'd be like, man, like, how do you get, how do you get, yeah, that's huge, man. You know, he packs, and I was like, really admiring his physique, you know. And he, I kept asking him, like, what are you doing? What do you eat? What's the, you know, like, he just he looks, I don't know, it looks like you, man. Like, he looks so standout. And he's like, look, look dude, like, just, just shut up for a minute. Like, yeah, this is me and he goes, I take steroids. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, what? He says, yeah, I take steroids. And he says, you're never going to have these arms unless you take steroids too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh. but I really appreciate it. He goes, don't tell anyone. But, yeah. but I was really appreciative of his honesty. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting that yeah. you so why do you think he was so open with, with just you just so I was annoying him so much oh yeah because <laughs> there's like a, a weekend class and and I guess he sort of he could see I was genuine I was sort of like hating him or whatever and, and I was just like oh well yeah okay yeah, yeah. and um, and then I was like okay I gave up on that on that, on that goal mm-hmm. and I thought if I, do another, if I do enough pump classes I'll look like him but it's like I could do all the pump classes in the world but unless I'm taking gear I'm never going to look like him mm-hmm. so it was just so I've learned that the gym industry was just sending out all these steroid people to sell the creatine or protein shakes or gym memberships. But again, all these people are on steroids, and I'm taking steroids myself as well. Mm-hmm. And I can say they, they really do work incredibly, especially if you gain these uh, muscle, mm-hmm. uh, transform your whole physique. And so, yeah, so then I'd be working in gyms and people would tell me what the goals were, and they'd show me a photo of someone, and I'd be like, well, that's, that's steroids. And a lot of people would be like, that's, what do you mean it's steroids? Steroids is cheating, I would never do that. And I'm like, well, you never look like that. Mm-hmm. And people get disillusioned or they get angry with me or they're like, oh, that's what he's talking about. I'm going to some other trainer who's going to lie to my face. And and so I got quickly disillusioned of the gym industry and, and pulled out after almost a year of working there and mm-hmm. did my own thing. Yeah, I mean, well, if you, if you think about it, there's it's not like, there's there's no drug testing in that industry. No. <laughs> if you're, if there's you're no drug model, testing on YouTube. Right? No drug <laughs> testing on YouTube. You know, if, you're, if you're a model, you're promoting you know, sort of yeah. product. I mean, yeah. unless, unless you're, you happen to also be a competitive athlete, yeah. then that's one thing. But that's another story as well. I mean, we've seen with, you know, like you name, you name a sport, right? And you can find, yeah. you know, proof that there's people who are, who are using stuff. Um, yeah. And it's, but yeah, especially when you think of the people who are solely in the business of selling protein powders. And aesthetics. Aesthetics. Like there's, there's no, there's zero drug yeah. control for that. Yeah. So uh, if you're trying to sell a product, on the basis of having achieved an, an aesthetic a look that you you have to be above everybody else. There's nobody's gonna want if you just look like a normal guy. Yeah, hey, I look like a normal guy. Buy yeah. my protein powders. Yeah. Why do I need your protein powder? Yeah. Right. So you, it's 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 sales, right? It's, it's, I learned it's easy to lie to someone than convince them they've been lied to. Mm-hmm. It's crazy all that. Like it's, well, I mean, for sure, and veganism is the same thing. Bingo. I mean, bingo. 
convincing people what's what's really going on and what they really need to eat for their health. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, you won't die from protein deficiency. Yeah, people yeah, really yeah. believe you will die from protein deficiency. Or you well, won't have protein. Yeah, that that's the main concern. And honestly, the main. I mean, I th- I think you you probably agree that when you talk to people who have gone vegan because there's there's lots of people who, who try try the vegan thing. Mm. And they'll say things like, oh, I did it, felt good for a little while, and then I just didn't have any energy, or I just felt like I was, you know, couldn't, I was just hungry all the time, and, or they'll say, my body was just saying I just needed protein. It's like their brain instantly goes to protein, yeah. as opposed to just like, man, you just weren't eating enough. You, you're just not getting enough calories, period, because yeah. if you've got a plate that's filled with cheese and animal products, it's gonna be easily say a thousand calories. You yeah. fill that same plate with the same visually the same amount of food from plants. Like veggies. You're gonna have way exactly have way less calories. But but it's just so interesting how all of this marketing on like how important protein is. Yeah. That's what people think first. They yeah. think oh it must be protein. Mm-hmm. They don't even think that it's just simply calories. It's just this brainwashing, right? It must be. Yeah. It's like people go vegan. Let's say someone eats a standard American diet, Australian diet, they have their cereal, they have their meat, they go for dinner, maybe have pasta and chicken or whatever, and then they go vegan, they do research, and oh, actually, I'm gonna be a low carb vegan, I'm gonna do spiral inner shake, and then they go to dinner and have like a bit of lettuce and a, a couple of a handful of beans and a green tea, and all of a sudden they might lose weight a little bit, but then their energy just gonna bottom out. They go, oh, yeah, I no. tried vegan, you know, I was eating, spending all the big bucks on organic, and I read all the doctor's books and stuff, and yeah, I was, oh, it didn't work, huh? it didn't work. Yeah. So they won't get enough carbohydrate. So that's why I harp on about the carbohydrate intake, get enough, get enough, get enough. Yeah, so what are what are the fundamentals that you would, you know, preach to somebody who's who's getting into a vegan lifestyle? What are those fundamentals, you know? I would say definitely sleep water sugar. This goes for any it doesn't matter what you're eating. Yeah. If you're a meat eater or whatever, you've got to have enough sleep water sugars. Otherwise you're gonna fail in your performance, your health, your mood, your hormones, everything's gonna be less than what you would otherwise so just start with sleep I'd recommend people go to bed at least you know, 8, 9, 10 p.m. some people will totally laugh at that but there's a hormone called luteinizing hormone which is produced by the pituitary gland and doesn't get the released or produced enough if you go to bed past you know, 9, 10 p.m. so you have lowered testosterone or lowered estrogen if you're a woman so that luteinizing hormone is really really powerful uh, there's sleep there regulates all your serotonin your melatonin everyone knows sleep's good early night early rise yeah you're not going to have many people argue with you on that yeah <laughs> but people have got their families or work and this yeah. society is set up for that you know? oh yeah it's, it's hard man it's hard to get yeah. sleep get sure. and get then people everyone's like half asleep and then like you have 10 cups of coffee a day or modafinils or ritalins or whatever every single day every few hours what about naps do you rate naps right, naps are really powerful yeah they're really good because again they boost your luteinizing hormone mm-hmm. which will boost your healthy hormones I love taking naps. Yeah. I take a nap almost every day, especially you know training for triathlon. Normally, I'm training at least twice a day, so getting that nap in the second session of the day is always so much better. Yeah. Um, and that's on top of I try to get a minimum of eight, eight or nine hours a night, and that's on top of that. Yeah, because yeah, I think the more you're training, too, the more you got to sleep. I would say. Hundred yeah. percent. You're doing really well this year. Like you're getting a good lifestyle, and your your gains are going right up. So it's nice. very I feel like it. Feel yeah. like it. Yeah, having some success. Yeah, it's, again, it's simple things. You know, yeah. Sleep, water, sugar. It's like the the Kenyans know that. So the things. Um, carbohydrate intake. I recommend people start with at least ten grams of carbs per kilo body weight per day. So if you're sixty kilos, it's about six hundred grams of carbs, and you might need less than that, you might need more than that. But that's just a good template to go with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd also recommend 
cutting out oil from your diet for like maybe a month. This is an experiment and see where you go, especially adding oil to your food. You know, just just try and not add any oil to your food for a month and see how much lighter and clearer your skin will be, how you better you'll feel. Another one would be uh, the water, drink enough water so you're peeing clear every two to three hours. I like to start every day with one liter of water and have a liter of water before most meals. And then I pee every two or three hours clear, my kidneys feel good, my blood volume's good. It's really good. At night time I get up a couple of times, go to bed at the bathroom, ideally. And it just, just feels good getting up and sort of moving the body and then going back to sleep, go out to rest. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't like getting up at night, but it's better to be hydrated and have a pee at night than to be dehydrated or dry mouth, which can also affect your dental health. If you don't pee at night time, you're probably dehydrated and your mouth's going to be dry and it has to be, and there'll be less saliva, which means less dental health. So saliva protects the teeth. I recommend have a water bottle while your bedside cabinet or wherever you're sleeping. Have a water bottle, just sip it. If you wake up, keep your mouth moist, keep the saliva going good, keep your dental, keep your chompers healthier. For sure. It's so basic things, and most vegans don't even get taught this. You read the average vegan book, it's like don't eat sugar, don't eat too much fruit, don't eat too much white rice, or you know, carbs are good but not too many carbs, you know, carbs are good but not processed, carbs are carbs, under a microscope, glucose and fructose is exactly the same. Mm. Yeah. If you go to hospital in a coma, they give you glucose drip. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like refined sugars will boost your performance, I've saved your life. See, but this is where you would get into some uh, controversy, mm-hmm. isn't it? The amount of, I mean, People there's clothes, put walls up when you say refined sugar is good for you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely um, a lot of people who would say, you know, there's a big difference between, say, you know, sugar from fruit and sugar from refined carbohydrates. Do you, I think, do you think there's a difference? Under the microscope, there's not. Glucose is the same from where it comes from. So, fructose. The fruit but, it gives you nutrients, your fibers, all the micronutrients. Right. And I say, you know, I eat more fruit than, than the last. 18 years and most people have ever met in my life so I'm, I'm, a, I'm the fruit guy you know, definitely pushing the fruit and I say have refined sugar to boost the simple sugar intake every day mm-hmm. you've got to eat your fruit you can't still refined sugar you'll die of scurvy right. there's not enough nutrients in sugar to live off that forever right. no one's going to do that anyway because you're going to get hungry for other things so, but I say adding sugar to your smoothies your fruit salad just try it you cut your oil out watch your insulin sensitivity rise insulin Resistance would go down, your mood will go up, your desire or the dependence on stimulants like caffeine or prescription meds like Ritalin will go down, your mood will be better. Just do it for a month before you knock it and then go from there. Mm-hmm. And here in Chiang Mai, all the leanest vegan cyclists, they're all the sugar sugar bats. Mm-hmm. Like you and Tori and me and Natasha and everyone, regardless of our fitness. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not that fit at the moment, but I'm still very lean. Yeah. Natasha's not fit at the moment, she's still very lean. Tori's flying at the moment, but and she's very lean. But they're all, you know, got varying levels of fitness. You know, you're fitter than me at the moment, mm-hmm. and but we're all eating the same stuff, and we're, we're all very similar. Pretty much. So it's like pretty much. Yeah. So I think there's there's this idea that I mean, some people will say that you're you're promoting like tons and tons and tons of sugar, and enough that you need. Enough that you need. Have more. Yeah. So. For somebody who's sedentary, like who's not doing, obviously that's not ideal, right? Because fitness is, it should be part of health. health. Let's say somebody- Let's say in a hospital with two broken legs, two broken arms, your yeah. appetite will naturally decrease. Have you found yeah. that when you cut your training? Oh yeah, abs- absolutely, exactly. absolutely. But let's say, let's say you've only got an appetite for, you know, 2,000, maybe two, two and a half thousand mm-hmm. calories a day or something like that. Because you're in a hospital with two arms, broken legs. Yeah, so you're not doing anything. Would you be, 
more inclined to, you know, advise people to get their calories from whole foods just because of getting those nutrients? Or would you, you know, I mean, because the way I look at it is, you know, adding sugars for me is like, like I, I think, I think we agree that we need to have, you know, a certain amount of whole foods, right? Of course. Of course. And then the sugar, the added sugar, like for me is more, it's going to help my performance because for me to get the same amount of glucose from whole foods, I have to eat so much more Food. Fiber, just yeah, volume yeah. of food. Extra right? weight. Your guts yeah. sticking out all day because you're eating, you're eating like you know, 100 potatoes a day. Mm-hmm. We can have maybe 20 or 30 potatoes a day and some sugar mm-hmm. and get more of a flat stomach. So yeah. if someone's chasing acidics, sugar's going to help them have a flatter stomach because we have less food to have to eat. Mm-hmm. In terms of nutrient wise, I've never met anyone in my life who's had a nutrient deficiency mm-hmm. from not eating enough whole foods. You know, when I used to live on McDonald's and total junk, I didn't have any nutrient deficiencies I was aware of. I had glucose deficiency. I wasn't carved up enough. I had too much fat in my bloodstream for all the McDonald's and oils mm-hmm. and stuff. But people talk about micronutrients and stuff, and it's important. But, but look what the average person eats. The average person eats junk. Yeah. And then no one's dying from nutritional deficiency. They're dying from heart disease and too much fat and proteins. They're dying from cancers for various hormonal reasons. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I've never met anyone who has a real nutritional deficiency. Yeah, so the main, I guess the main thing is getting getting that junk out, all that high oily yeah, and animal products. No one got fat from a diet of rice, potatoes, beans, fruits, vegetables, and sugars. Yeah, yeah. yeah but sure. I know a lot of vegans fail on the vegan lifestyle because they try to be too clean and they've got nothing to eat, not enough calories, and they're, they're going AWOL. So to answer the question, if someone's sedentary in hospital with two hours broken legs, then they'll quickly be able to know how much potatoes and sugar or sugar they need. And if they feel better with no sugar, then yeah, try that. Because you're learning they do nothing. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't have kids depending on you don't have to run a business. You don't have to have sex three or four times a day to get your partner satisfied, you're still satisfied. So your performance when you're laying in bed with two arms broken legs, the performance requirements is very low. You're probably not gonna even need to have any sugar. I call mm-hmm. sugar a PEF, a performance enhancing food. Mm-hmm. So the more you need to perform mm-hmm. or want to perform, the more sugar you're gonna find you're gonna need as a backup source. Yeah. Right now I'm drinking a tamarind juice. Uh, it's first ingredient is uh, tamarind juice and then sucrose and then fructose syrup. Mm-hmm. And so it just it keeps me sharp, it keeps me you know, on point and it's for instance, performance enhancing food. But if I was here eating a potato, that'd be good, but I'd need something a bit more sweet. Or maybe I had some fruit here, and I'd be like, oh, sugar and bananas, a bit unripe, or it's picked too early. Mm-hmm. But with refined sugar, you can have that caloric certainty, you can guarantee your sugar macros for the day. Mm-hmm. And if you add it to your whole foods vegan diet, you get all your fiber, everything else, your micronutrients, but you just get that little boost, little bump up of sugar. Just like when athletes take hormones, to boost their levels up a bit, they're gonna have better health, they're gonna have better performance. So same with sugar. Mm-hmm. In nature, you'll get a lot more. The fruit will be always be ripe and you know, wholesome, but these days the fruit's picked so early, it's got hardly any sugar compared to what it used to should have. It's crazy when you get actually good fruit and oh, yeah. you, you taste what it should taste like. And you don't want to add sugar to it, it's yeah. really good. But I've, I've had killer mangoes. Mangoes that will just drop you onto your knees, they're so good. Yeah. Actually, you'd be like, I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna eat mangoes off this tree for the next two hours. Yeah. And you don't wanna have any sugar, you don't need any sugar because there's so much sugar in that fruit. Yeah. You go buy a mango from Whole Foods or from the market in Australia, and it's bland, it's tart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So a good way to measure food value is called the BRICS meter, uh, the BRICS values, and the higher the BRICS level means the higher the sugar, the higher the nutrition. Mm-hmm. All foods should have a high BRICS value. But today's soils, and the 
or the picked early or certain varieties, mm-hmm. the bricks value is low. So by adding in sugar, you're going to increase your bricks values in your food and you're going to have better performance. So people just have to try it. Always say, try before you deny. You've 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 had the uh, you've had this experience, right? I mean, you used to be fruitarian. Yeah, right? it's pretty, it's pretty much full on, pretty full on sugar. Like, mm-hmm. like the devil was like, no, it's refined sugar. Yeah. And then in 2009, I was in Chandler, retired with Fred Patnard and Freely, and we're drinking cane juice. And Fred Patnard says, oh, I have a bit of sugar now. Then I'm like, I'm like refined sugar. Yeah, because he's like the raw food guy. And I was like, oh, how does it make you feel? Because that's fine, man. He goes, what do you think you're drinking, Harley? You're drinking cane juice. All sugar is is dehydrated cane juice, like you know, it's dehydrated grass. So that sort of got the gears turning. A yeah, bit. I was like, that's pretty logical. That's yeah. pretty honest. And I was like, yeah, it's true. And then I had uh, some, you know, cooked bananas in 2010 in the Philippines, and they had like glucose syrup on top of them. And I remember eating those bananas and just be like, holy shit! I was like buzzing. Mm-hmm. My cells have got that boost of sugars in there. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, that's a sugar spike. It's just it's what your sugars run on, glucose and fructose. And so when you have that surge of energy, that is good. People well, yeah, it's a, I mean, when people talk about sugar spikes and, and all that, it's like you, you, you eat a meal, you're, you should have a, a spike. <laughs> if you don't, it's something wrong with your body. Yeah, what the, I mean, what people don't understand when you talk about diabetes and stuff is those like elevated levels. Sustained. And, and that's due to fat. And sustained, that's it. That's called insulin uh, resistance, yeah. where there's not enough insulin to push the sugar level down. Right. So that causes all your diabetic metabolic syndrome issues. So increase the carbohydrate means a decrease in insulin resistance, mm-hmm. and to decrease the fat means an increase in insulin sensitivity. Right. So and I'm, I'm helping people cure diabetes type two on um, this high carb refined sugar lifestyle, mm-hmm. definitely. And type one diabetics all have to improve. Yeah. H hemoglobin A1C levels, which is your glycated hemoglobin, all their levels drop down to like five or six. They have this less medication. They feel better. They lose weight. Try it out before you knock it. Try it before you deny. I remember when I when I was first getting into veganism, I found like Dan the Man. He is his videos first yeah. life life regenerator. Um, I think you know he says a lot of good stuff. He's very like motivating, especially for a lot of the, the ethical stuff and mm-hmm. you know just cleaning out cleaning out your body. But there is that sort of restrictive you know thinking you get into. Um, you know the for sure it's unsustainable and it's not only him it's it's, there's so many people who you know are sort of vilifying carbohydrates and things like that that's the trend and um, it's the mainstream but I I remember it because I was getting into it getting into veganism and you know just you know from an ethical standpoint from a a health standpoint too and I you know I started getting really lean and I was Mm. like oh this is kind of nice but then at a certain point it was like I started just I was really hungry all the time, and I was just like, I remember I, I had like I used to keep sauerkraut in my fridge, yeah. and I would just I would just be like, oh, like I don't, I don't need to eat, I don't need to eat, and then I'd go and just like it eat sauerkraut, and it's like yeah. there's no calories in there, <laughs> and I just remember I remember one day you know finding finding your videos and just I think you were just eating like you know a big thing of rice like promoting like just rice and soy sauce, yeah. I'm like you know, I'm gonna give that a go, and I remember I just made a big big thing of rice and soy sauce, and I was just feasting on it and it was just like that satiation that I just, I, I'd been missing you know um, and that's just really you know it's it's important to have a healthy relationship around food and within the vegan community there are a lot you know there's a lot of people who come to veganism and they develop orthore- orthorexia and, and things like that or even people who have eating disorders mm-hmm. and, and they and it sort of brings them to veganism like it's 
it's an issue. It's something we need to talk about, and I think it's something that you've you've done a good job of really sort of, you know, um, getting a bit of a healthier, sort of more relaxed, you know, uh, approach to, yeah. to what you can eat and not not, not fearing, you know, carbohydrates and that kind Being of thing. Yeah, I always like teaching people: you know, focus on productivity versus your weight. Your weight will take care of itself, but if you're you know, a lot of people come to veganism who are anorexics. Now, I've been anorexic myself, so I can relate, but look, people come to veganism often to hide their anorexia mm. you know, so that they can cut their food choices down even more. Mm. And so, which can be good in a way because they're coming to the right side, but then they can take it too far and get sick. Mm. And then people go, oh, look at that vegan, they're deadly ill, ill. And then vegan gets a, a cross against his name. I had a great, uh, I had a great conversation with David, David Banana, yeah. um, about, you know, because he's got a history of eating disorders as well, and we went, we went pretty pretty deep into all that stuff mm-hmm. on that episode. So if anybody's listening to this and you're struggling, you know, that's another episode that could be might be good to check out. I don't know if you've checked that or not. Not yet. I, I don't listen to anyone's podcast to be honest. <laughs> fair enough, years. fair enough. Slack I'm not 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 that I don't like it, but I've got so much audio I've got to get through my phone yeah. already. No, it's all good. I definitely rate the podcast format because you can be watching this podcast listening to this podcast, washing dishes, yeah, changing nappies, cleaning bikes, walking to school eating food on a plane whatever whatever yeah for sure you play it it's very very powerful yeah and I like I like the idea of, of having long form conversations I mean there's lots of really short and snappy content out there and the podcast format's kind of cool because you get to just sort of just have a longer form you know more of a relaxed not, not sure. worrying too much about you know going over time or whatever yeah but um, I mean having said that you may want to start wrapping it up mm-hmm. um, I would like there's one question I wanted to ask hey, you. Ask me anything. Uh, so if you if you had if you could have every single person in the world right understand one thing with crystal clarity, and so everybody in the world understands one thing that they don't now already yeah. with crystal clarity, what would you want them to understand? The the best way forward for everything on the planet is high carb, low fat, vegan, cyclist lifestyle. Why cyclists as well? Oh, well, because we I mean. We can all be high carb vegans, but we're all driving cars and the traffic's getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd also recommend vasectomies, but maybe that's another podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it'd be high carb vegan. High carb, low fat vegan. Just increase the mood of everybody, the, the weight, people will have less weight issues, the diabetes crisis would totally be eradicated, especially type 2. Yeah, the heart disease would drop right off, the, the cancers, the, the, the obesity, we all just, everyone would be carbon up, be fruit everywhere, rice everywhere. Just fit, lean cyclists everywhere. Like you, you know, it'd be fantastic. It'd be like a total, total dream. So that's been the thing. Would be if everyone in the world knew that a high carb, low fat, vegan cyclist way of life is is the gold ticket to create a much better world, then that would be a fantastic one. Because vegan alone is great, but it's not the best. Because you can be vegan and still obese, eating heaps of oily stuff, and it's better for the animals for sure. But it's you know, it's not going to help the, the pollution that was that much of traffic and stuff because you're driving everywhere because you're so fatigued from all the fat. But if you're carbon up, you go, I want, I want, a, I want a moving body. Because it's the thing, people are sedentary, but like, why are they sedentary? Two arms, two broken legs in hospital? Okay. But that's, that's a minority. Mm-hmm. Most people are sedentary because they don't have enough energy, which comes from carbohydrate. For sure. And so they eat too much fat and they feel sludgy, they excess weight. And when you're fat and you've got excess weight and under carb, you don't, do, you don't move nothing except for your hand to pick up the remote control or that thumb on the phone to scroll up. So if you carve up, you, you, you won't want to be sedentary anymore. People right. say, what if I just sat on the couch and ate 6,000 calories of rice a day? One, you couldn't do that for more than a couple of days because you'd get sick of eating so much rice and have no appetite to do that. And two, you, you got to start to want to move. You've got to be jittery, you're going to be fidgety. Like, I, I can't sit still 
longer than maybe 10 hours. Yeah. I want to go move. It's not because it's nervous energy, but I just love getting my blood flowing. And it's healthy. You know, I, I, I have a sedentary job where I'm at least 70 hours a week in the computer. At least 70 hours a week in the computer all the time. Mm-hmm. So it, from the way to avoid blood clots and deep vein fibrosis from sitting down so much, I like to move every hour. Just walk around the house, do a few push-ups, yeah. ride the bike to the shop, come back with more food. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not healthy to sit down for long periods of times. And so sedentary lifestyle, we should be uh, trying to avoid that. For sure. By riding our bikes as transport. Mm-hmm. Ideally, Definitely. whenever possible. Not all the time, for some people, but more is better. Okay. Burn more fat, less oil. Yeah, man, it's great. It's, it's, you're super inspiring that that is what you want to see happen in the world, mm-hmm. and that's what you're working towards every day. Yeah, well, I, I created that here in Chiang Mai. I um, mean, you've been here for all the festivals, haven't you? Pretty much. Uh, not here, but Thailand. Originally, I remember like watching your videos of oh, like, as you, you traveling. No, but when did you? You've been to all the fruit festival here. Yes, I, the, the first couple of years, I think I was just for like a couple of days. Yeah, you know, like, these sort of people were yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure, man. I so mean, that was like a little snippet into what could the world could be like. Yeah. You know? I mean, we said lots of drama, and yeah, <laughs> some of those people were like. Anyway, but that's so that's a, a snippet of like that. You know, vegan cafes getting full house bikes everywhere just bikes all over the road like that, that's sort of, sort of like, you know a utopia that that, that that will work could work but uh yeah so it's interesting but uh, I think I, I think you know after organising those events and having you know I think it was, we had like five or six hundred people here in 2016 and some of the dramas and stuff unfolding it's almost like the humans just can't get along <laughs> even if we are you know. Well, have you read Sapiens? I'm listening to Sapiens now. No, you said they're not. Yeah. I, I really recommend. Yeah. I haven't finished the whole thing, but yeah. they're talking about how you know he, one of the things about humans is we can we have the ability to sort of cooperate in, in larger mm. numbers. But I mean, in in practicality, you know, humans. I mean, I'm probably going to butcher this. Everybody should check out Sapiens if you haven't read it. But the idea is that you get you can only get to a certain number. I think it's about 150. Um, and that's any, any more than maybe 100 or 150 people and you need you, there's generally going to be a split like you can really? you can only have <laughs> so I, I don't know, and I'm probably butchering that you should read it check yeah. it out but you know it's, it's difficult you know organizations right if you look at large organizations yeah. right like you have hierarchies within organizations you can't just have one person looking after everybody you know in organizations you have like a hierarchy of people hmm. you know in, in different teams so it's you know it's uh when you talk about organizing events or having, you know, organizations, community, yeah. communities and stuff like that, that's, you know, that's, it's an interesting topic, but I think the main thing though is everybody there was, although there's going to be bound to be drama and whatever, everybody sort of understood, you know, what, what you're basically mm-hmm. said, you know, yeah. that we're, it's important for everybody to be high carb vegan and to be cyclists, you yeah. know, to understand that we got to keep ourselves healthy and yeah. we got to, you know, ride our bikes around and you know use less plastic all that kind of stuff right mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. that mentality which um, you know despite all the drama or whatever that, that did sort of you know that, brought yeah. everybody together and yeah and, and also just seeing the personal transformations in people like having relationships or YouTube channels got people off the back of my festival like, and just yeah like the times and the doy the girls and the guys and just like mm-hmm. and drug free 99.9% of them and so just seeing that you know, that, was a, that was like a, like a science experiment that's yeah, really for cool. sure. For and, just, sure. and just how deep people can push themselves if they've got like a peer group pushing them up. Absolutely. Especially the girls. Mm-hmm. Especially some of the times the girls at the door, like Tori or Anna, or you know, just just having that 
peer expectation of them is crushing. So yeah, yeah, very good times. Yeah, man. Good times. Definitely. <laughs> cool. Well, you're putting out heaps of inspiring content and have been for years, yeah. man. So continue, continue to do that. Yeah, you're good at doing podcasts. You're a good interviewer. This Thanks, man. This is, this is going very, very smoothly. Yeah, man. I think we covered a lot of good stuff, and yeah. I hope I hope people um, you know can take. Well, if people, people have any questions, we can do a follow up on this. Uh, for sure, man. Yeah, if you got any questions, let us know, yeah. and we can do we can do episode two with Harley, do more Q and A. Um, yeah, man. Well, uh, it's been good chatting. Yeah, thanks, man. Cool, man. We'll catch you later. All right, done. So there you have it, a bit of insight into the mind of one of the most influential vegans on the planet. If you haven't already checked out his YouTube channel, check him out at youtube.com slash durianriders, and that's with an S, but if you just search Durian Rider on YouTube, you'll uh, you'll find him. And uh, yeah, and from, from his YouTube, you can find links to his other social media profiles, such as his Instagram and Facebook. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, it would be really great if you could help support the show so that this thing can grow. How can you do that? The first thing you can do, tell people about it. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, anybody you think might enjoy the show. Um, the next thing you can do is subscribe to the podcast, especially on iTunes. Depending on when you're listening to this or watching it, it may not be up on iTunes yet, but it will be up there soon. So yeah, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen really. Um, but if you could leave a review on iTunes, uh, particularly that would be really, really awesome just to help the show, um, get more, get more traffic. Uh, you can also subscribe on YouTube, which would be fantastic and drop us a comment if you feel inclined to do so. And if you really want to support the work that I'm doing, um, financially, you can support me on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash Jason Fonger. Also, if you have a vegan-friendly business and would like to sponsor an episode of the show, um, please reach out at theveganchampionpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to learn more about me and keep up to date about what I'm doing, check out my website at jasonfonger.com. You'll find all of my social media links there too. And if you'd like to contact me, you can do so by sending an email to jasonfongerinfo at gmail.com. That's all for today. Thank you so much for checking out the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we'll see you in the next episode. Peace out. champion podcast is brought to you by matt chalmers check him out on instagram at matt chal music that's at m-a-t-t-c-h-a-l-m-u-s-i-c check him out on the instagram 